Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to a bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. The Buck Sexton Show. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Welcome, everybody, to the Buck Sexton Show. Great to have you here with me in the Freedom Hut. I'm coming to you live from uh, Baltimore, Maryland. I had to do a little... Uh, travel today, see some friends and colleagues down in the Baltimore area. A productive day, but also a lot going on in the world around me. So I'm excited to talk to you about all that. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825, if you uh, wish to call in and talk about some of the things. Quick roadmap of where we're going today on this Team Buck adventure, on this Freedom Hut extravaganza. Uh, We will be discussing immigration, of course, big, big, big immigration day down on uh, Capitol Hill, down in D.C. We'll get into all the latest on that. Come up here in just a moment. Second hour, some updates on Fusion GPS, the dossier, the text messages between FBI agents. What can we take from the testimony that Senator Feinstein released from the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, from a an interview with Fusion GPS co-founder Glenn Simpson back in August, Russia collusion. What is it pointing to? There's no there's no collusion when it comes to Trump, but there may have been collusion when it comes to the Department of Justice, the FBI, and some partisan left wing Democrat pro Hillary activists. Ooh, that's gonna be that's gonna be an interesting one as that can as that plays out as we get more proof of that. And uh, we'll be joined by my friend uh, Ned Ryan of American Majority Action. Just give his take on what's been going on this week. And uh, talk to you later on about the flu and flu shots and things like that. So we're going to cover a lot of ground today, as we always do here on the show. I will note that not as much in the realm. Some of you have been asking me, you know, Buck, when are we going to do some deep dives in national security I try to keep it in line with what's going on in the news cycle as much as I would love to sit here and get into a breakdown of uh, tribes and and warfare in Somalia or discuss the various offshoots of the Islamic State around the world. And and maybe I should do that anyway. Maybe that's a whole separate podcast, although got a lot of work I got to do already on the Shields High History Podcast, which has been doing very well. Thanks to all of you uh, who have downloaded it and listened to it. Please continue to do so. I. But I try to stay with what's in the news cycle. And, you know, it reminds me that Trump's victory over ISIS, it's really the allies we have in the U.S. military's victory over ISIS. But Trump is the commander in chief. He made some key decisions. It's one of the reasons why we're talking a lot less about terrorism and the threat of jihad and what's going on uh, with Syria and ISIS than we were in the past. So thanks, Trump, for that one. Uh, And I'm sure there'll be it's just a matter of time, as it always is, before there's more national security for us to get into, to uh, analyze together and to talk about. But today, look, immigration is a national security issue. 
And there was quite a lot of talk today with uh, Trump bringing in the cameras. Um, Trump bringing in the cameras to let folks see what the discussions were like when it specifically focused in on immigration. And, you know, we've been discussing this yesterday. I am a little bit concerned here because, well... You got Trump. You got to see how Trump is going to handle what Democrats want. Um, And the Democrats are willing to be very dishonest and do a lot of grandstanding, a lot of misdirection on the issue of immigration because they ultimately view it as an existential issue for, well, the Republican Party and for their party, meaning that if they get immigration right, if the Democrats get what they want, from not just DACA, but amnesty, which is their version of immigration reform, for all intents and purposes, the Republican Party ceases to exist. There will be a demographic shift in the country with, because let's talk about it with the percentages. Let's be, let's be straightforward. When you're discussing illegal immigration, I believe it is about 70% of illegal immigrants come from Mexico. It might be Mexico and Central America, but I believe it's 70% from Mexico alone, or 70% of the 11 million. And uh, Latino Americans, Mexican Americans specifically, vote Democrat in large numbers. And that's what is pushing the Democrat Party to go all in on amnesty. Because if they get amnesty right, now I don't mean right as in what's best for the country, I think it would be very damaging for the country, but if they get amnesty their way there really isn't going to be much in the in the way of fights on other issues they can get it will become a something of a single party state you know mexico interestingly enough until i think it was vincente fox um that was the first time in i want to say 70 years or so that the uh, the the pri which was the ruling party in mexico it's a democracy but it's one party in charge for 70 years Finally, the prime minister came from, or the president rather, came from a different, uh, a different political party. But we could have something like that here, if immigration goes the wrong way. So this, so the the stakes here are very high, and the Trump administration has got to get this right. And not just failure is not an option, but doing a poor job is not an option. So Trump brought uh, brought together some leaders of of both parties on Capitol Hill and. It, it was a big discussion about the big issues, looking at what really uh, what really can happen this year. And Trump said, and this is what the Democrats are going to really focus in on. Trump said that he was open to a big sweeping deal on immigration. Here's how The New York Times reported it. President Trump on Tuesday appeared to endorse an immigration deal that would eventually grant millions of undocumented immigrants a pathway to citizenship, saying he would be willing to, quote, take the heat politically for an approach that many of his hardline supporters have long viewed as unacceptable. The president made the remarks during an extended meeting with congressional Republicans and Democrats who were weighing a shorter term agreement that would extend legal status for undocumented immigrants brought to the United States as children. DACA. So there's the DACA component of this discussion. People that were brought here as children or as minors. And then there's the, what do we do with the 11 million illegal immigrants in the country? 
I don't think that Trump can. I, I don't think there's any deal. I don't think there's any negotiation that he can do that ends with amnesty for all 11 million without losing the trust of his base and, and without Trumpism essentially as a political force just becoming brought into, uh, becoming subsumed by or overtaken by the mainstream Republican beltway forces that have been running the party for a long time. DACA as a negotiating uh, negotiating chip, someone's a negotiating ploy, for other key immigrant uh, immigration issues seems to me to be reasonable. But Trump saying, quote, if you want to take it that further step, I'll take the heat. Uh, that's that's going to be interesting. And, and the notion that he's willing to deal with immigration wholesale under his presidency, this has brought down many a Republican in the past. Other than Trump calling Marco Rubio Lil Marco, I think his role in the Gang of Eight effort under the Obama administration, that comprehensive immigration reform effort, was probably what cost him a, a serious shot at winning the uh, GOP nomination. That was the biggest policy blunder. And, he, and even though he repudiated it after the fact, it was the biggest policy blunder that he made. It was the one thing for which a lot of the conservative base in this country was just not just not willing to forgive Marco Rubio for getting so close to being hoodwinked by the Democrats. That's what's going to happen. He was going to be bamboozled. He was going to be given a, a, a ride on the policy school bus, right? They were going to teach him a lesson because the amnesty was going to come first and nothing else was going to happen. Uh, that's why when Democrats now, Trump has already float, has already put out there he wants the things we talked about a bit yesterday. Uh, he wants there to be a wall. He wants there to be uh, an end to chain migration, E-Verify. These are all necessary pieces of a sound and a strong immigration uh, immigration policy in this country. And if he can get that in a way that is codified and real, then on DACA, he, he may end up disappointing some of the more hardline immigration voices out there. Although, if it stops the future waves of illegal immigrants from coming into the country, that will have been a victory. No Republican in the modern era has figured it out. Nobody yet has looked at the Democrats across the table on this issue and been able to get, get this done, quite honestly. Sure, there's some surge in border security, but that's always temporary, right? Send more agents to the border. Well, if the next administration tells them they have different enforcement priorities, you got to have a million border patrol agents there. But if they're not really allowed to pursue, if they're not really allowed to detain, if, they're, if, if the federal government doesn't have their back, so to speak, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter at all. So this is, uh, is going to be very closely watched by me, and I know by... many of you as well, Uh, the Democrats, I don't think, really have an option of just complete and utter stonewalling. I I think they will have to come up with more than just, we refuse to deal. They're going to say that a little bit, but that's, it's one thing to say it. It's one thing for, you know, Dick Durbin of of Illinois to say that he's, what he said earlier, lives are hanging in the balance. So this has to be done uh, right away. Right. The, uh, the undocumented immigrants under DACA, they have to give them 
continued protection. I noted yesterday that the El Salvadorans who have come to the country, or is it Salvadorans, who have come to the country under this temporary protected status program, that's ending. And for a lot of folks, the, the, the debate has been, well, what do we do with people that aren't allowed to be in the country, that aren't in the country legally? Are we going to deport them all? Are we going to have these deportation squads? One, we already do have, at some level, deportation squads. We have Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, and they will show up and they'll take people out of their homes and, and send them back to their country of origin. They do that. Generally, they've been focusing on people with additional criminality uh, beyond just their status, but th- we do deport people. And there's people who will still cling to this fiction that the Obama administration was uh, so hardline on deportations. But the reality is that if you stop the ability of illegals to work, they will, in, in large numbers, choose to go back to the country that they came from. They're not undocumented in the sense that they have no documents. They just don't have American documents. It's different. It's a different thing. To call them undocumented is a, a dishonest euphemism. And that's why Democrats like it so much, because it's a way of avoiding the discussion or avoiding from the beginning of discussion that they've broken the law, that they're in the country because they broke the law. So something that we should all uh, remember as we discuss this. Uh, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. What are your thoughts on this? Can Trump come away from from the Democrats and get something on immigration that is an acceptable deal. Is it, is it going to happen? Can it happen? What do you think? 844-900-2825. And uh, we'll be back right after this break. Here today to advance bipartisan immigration reform that serves the needs of the American families, workers, and taxpayers. Uh, it's DACA. I feel having the Democrats in with us is absolutely vital because this should be a bipartisan bill. This should be a bill of love. Truly, it should be a bill of love, and we can do that. But it also has to be a bill where we're able to secure our border. We need a wall. We need closing enforcement. We have to close enforcement loopholes, uh, give immigration officers, and these are tremendous people, the border security agents, the ICE agents. We have to give them the equipment they need. So the president... In his uh, meeting today, which was uh, televised, people to see what was going on, making some very interesting points about immigration and making it clear that he he would like to get. And look, I, I believe him. I take him at his word on this one. If he can get Democrats to go along with something that is sensible and that is uh, not a a turnabout from what he promised his base when he was running, it would be great. But I just don't think the hashtag resistance Democrats are going to give an inch on this. They're going to they're going to be uh, maximalists. They're going to be absolutists on DACA and that we that, that the Republican Party going into a possible government shutdown situation is afraid of Democrats saying that Republican or rather Democrats could shut down the government by refusing to go along with everything unless they get DACA. And that Republicans could get blamed for that or that Republicans might get blamed in this situation is just crazy that that the American people are not with Democrats when it comes to 
what a priority uh, DACA is, when I say what priority, that, that this is worth going to the mat for in, in absolute terms. I, I'm concerned that Trump's going to say, or, or the Republicans, I don't know who's going to cave on this and how it's really going to go, but I'm concerned that there's going to be a discussion of it that goes something like, well, you know, DACA, let's do that now, and then we'll work on a big, a big uh, conservative package of immigration reforms. No, 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 no. You've got to get up front, not just promises, but policy. It has to be done. You have to get it or else the, the Democrats will just double cross them on this. Democrats double crossed Reagan. I was telling you, you go back and you look at what happened, the Reagan amnesty back in the 80s. I forget what year it was. It was in the 80s. Um, but you go back, you, you look at it and there were all these enforcement mechanisms, all this stuff. None of that was actually enacted. And Trump saying this is an this is a uh, this will be a bill of love hey uh it'll be a bill of love okay i don't really know what that's gonna mean love for who love for what love for rule of law that's gonna upset the democrats to no end as we're all already quite aware uh i'm i'm gonna have to see how this shakes out i i have my concerns but i would note that uh the president with his signature atop the tax cut bill going into the new year deserves a little bit of space, a little bit of leeway here to figure this thing out without people being being too apprehensive. I'm really talking to myself here. I'm talking to myself off the ledge a little bit. You know, it's going to be okay, Buck. He he knows what he knows what he's up against on the other side. He understands them. The other part of this that's a concern is that the Republicans may sell out. The Republican Congress cannot be trusted on immigration. You get a lot of people, Paul Ryan, oh my gosh, go on, if you want, just, uh, I'm pretty sure it's still on YouTube, go and look at what Ryan was saying about immigration back in like 2012, and go back a, a, a bunch of years and you'll see Ryan was basically taking the, hey, if you want to come here and work here, you know, the more the merrier, go for it. Not a, not a moment's thought or consideration for the American worker or the American taxpayer because, in an increasingly information-based economy, bringing people in without regard to their skills and their ability to contribute and compete in our economy is an enormous drain on public resources, which is just a fancy way of saying costs a lot of tax dollars. Yeah. There, there's the issue of competition for jobs, which people disagree about here and there. The truth is that, that in a localized fashion is the case, that if you're if there's an influx of illegals into into your state, your hometown, there there is more competition for jobs that are uh, generally entry level and and uh, low skilled. But I just went on too long about that. I'm not going to have time to finish that thought even. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. We are going to. Oh yeah, we're talking about Bannon. Got a Bannon update for you and the Michael Wolf book. Got some thoughts on that too. And uh, we'll be back with you in just a few. So stay right there. With all due respect, Bob and uh, Mike uh, and Lindsay, uh, there are some things that you're proposing that are going to be very controversial and will be an impediment to agreement. But you're going to negotiate those things. You're going to sit down. You're going to say, "Listen, we can't agree here. We we'll give you half of that. We're going to you're going to negotiate Mr. those President, things." Comprehensive means comprehensive. No, we're not talking about no, comprehensive. No, no, now no. we're talking about. No, we are. We are talking about comprehensive. Because if you want many, to go there, it's okay because you're not that Mr. far President, away. President, many of the things that are mentioned ought to be a part 
of the negotiations regarding comprehensive immigration well, reform. Then, if you want to and take it a step further, you may, I'm going to have to rely on you, I think we you may that. complicate it, and you may delay DACA somewhat. I don't want to do that. So that was from the meeting today. I, I, I really like this. I, I like seeing the, the lawmakers have to mix it up and in real time and see what they have to say. I think it was great. I'd like to see more of it. I, I don't like the... You know, the, the, the hearings and they got the prepared questions. And Mr. Mr. Speaker, Senator Gergen uh, would like to be recognized for five minutes. Talk about my experiences in the Nixon administration. Uh, no, I mean, you know, I, I like it when you get to see these different. That was uh, that was House Minority Whip Steny Hoyer and the president there. You know, I like to see that. What are the different folks say? You can tell that some Republicans are nervous about all this. You can tell that they realize there's a lot at stake here. I mean, this is like control of the government stakes, how this immigration situation works out. And Trump made also very, very clear. I, 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 he can't back away from this, folks. I don't know what to say other than that. He has to get a wall. There's no, there's no version of Trump was successful in immigration that does not include a wall just doesn't exist. Play clip one. You need it. So you would John, you need the wall. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. I'd love not to build the wall, but you need the wall. And I will tell you this, the ICE officers and the Border Patrol agents, I had them just recently up. They say, if you don't have the wall, you know, in certain areas, obviously, that aren't protected by nature, if you don't have the wall, you cannot have security. You just can't have it. It doesn't work. And part of the problem we have is walls and fences that we currently have are in very bad shape. They're broken. We have to get them fixed or rebuilt. But, you know, you, you speak to the agents, and I spoke to all of them. I spoke, I lived with them. They endorsed me for president. They say, sir, without the wall, security doesn't work. We're all wasting time. Now, that doesn't mean 2,000 miles of wall, because you just don't need that because of nature, because of mountains and rivers and lots of other things. But... We need a certain portion of that border to have the wall. If we don't have it, you can never have security. Isn't this a really straightforward proposition? How many of you have properties where you have a fence or, you, you know, whether it's a picket fence or a, a fence to keep in, you know, livestock or just you like a little decorative stone wall or whatever. But, you know, walls have been around a long time. Walls are effective. Walls are being built, actually, in pretty substantial places, some big walls between countries, because it does work, okay? This is not a hard thing to figure out. You know, it, it, I was uh, when I was down in Aruba, I remember I was driving past an airport down there, and they had a, a fence around the airport that was, you know, 12, maybe 12 feet high, razor wire on top of it. Now, could I, if I had ill intent, could I find a way to get through that fence? Could I get over it? Sure. But without the fence there, I just walk on the airfield and, you know, whatever I want to do, I'm going to do. This is as straightforward as it gets. This is not hard. But you still have people out there who are just devoted to this idea that a wall isn't, a physical barrier isn't helpful for keeping people from crossing into territory that they should not. No one said it's perfect. None of, I come from a counterterrorism analysis background. None of our counterterrorism measures are perfect. A lot of them are just in place to hopefully, in concert with the other things we're doing, 
maybe stop or slow some attack at some point in time, right? Vehicle barriers. Perfect example. You've had such a surge in vehicle terror attacks in the last couple of years. Some mass casualty, really big, nasty attacks that have happened involving vehicles. So what's the response? Put up barriers. Is it a smart thing to say? To say, well, you know, you can drive around. the You find a place where there aren't barriers. Drive around a barrier. Of course, they're not going to be able to put barriers everywhere, and they're not perfect. You still need roads. And there's still going to be roads where there are people walking nearby and some jihadist psychopath is going to be able to run people down somewhere. We're not stopping. But is it worth putting up some vehicle barriers to make it harder to run a car through, let's say, Times Square, harder to run a car through a crowded park or gathering? Yeah. It's not, security is not about the perfect. It's about the best available options. And it's about an all of the, abru- all of the above approach. And that's why when I just hear this stuff about uh, the, how the wall's not going to work and the wall's a waste of time and all this, all I think to myself is these people have deluded themselves. They have deluded themselves. So Trump says he's good. Look, he's saying that he thinks this group of Republicans and Democrats, these lawmakers, will actually figure it out. He says he'll sign it, too. So play clip three. There should be no reason for us not to get this done. And Chuck, I will say, when this group comes back, hopefully with an agreement, this group and others from the Senate, from the House, comes back with an agreement, I'm signing it. I mean, I will be signing it. I'm not going to say, oh, gee, I want this or I want that. I'll be signing it because I have a lot of confidence in the people in this room that you're going to come out with something really good. This is a a very smart thing that Trump does. He, He makes it as clear to the public as possible. That if there's some collapse here in the talks, or if there's some issue, don't don't want to hear these pundits or whomever going on TV or the newspaper editorialist writing, oh, you know, Trump didn't lead enough. You know, Trump didn't do enough here. He's the leader of the Republican Party. He didn't do enough. No, he's saying, get it done, negotiate, and I'll sign it. Uh, Get it done, and we can move forward on an immigration policy that is... Uh, sane and that benefits the people of this country. Democrats won't do it. They they will never they will never accept the reality of what open borders would do to a country, and they would like to be in a quasi open border situation. They want to know who's coming into the country so they can tax them and for the purposes of you know voter registration. Probably more the latter. Uh, but th- there's really very little evidence that I see among mainstream Democrats now. They want to tell anybody that they can't come to the country. Oh, one more thing. You know, all the focus on the Trump book and everything else. I know Bannon is, I'm going to talk about this in a second. Bannon's out. Steve Bannon's out of Breitbart. Also, I just saw this. I haven't confirmed this yet. But I believe also he may be uh, out at Breitbart. I'm sorry, at uh, Sirius XM Radio. I just saw that before I came on air. But with all the focus on these things, Uh, What you don't have is enough of a focus on what Trump has been doing that is really good, that's benefiting the country. He signed an executive order today that's all about taking care of veterans. Play clip five. We've already made tremendous strides in delivering for our veterans, including passage of long-awaited veterans accountability legislation. One of the things I'm most proud of. For many years, they tried to pass veterans accountability and they couldn't do it. They failed. And after almost 40 years, we got it passed. 
And now when somebody doesn't do the job over at the VA, we fire that person. When somebody's bad to our great veterans, even sadistically bad, we fire those people, get them out and go after them. And we have a creation of a 24-hour veterans hotline. And uh, these were two of my campaign promises. But getting to me, getting the veterans accountability legislation passed, done, through the House, through the Senate, and I signed it, was a big, a big moment for the veterans. Trump is keeping, his, keeping the faith, keeping his promise to veterans in this country. He, he says he's going to take action on immigration. He will sign a bill. He's laid out what the principles are of what would be acceptable immigration reform, more security, a border wall, Ever all this, right? This is, this is the agenda, folks. This is the agenda. He is acting on it. They can talk about how he's crazy, 25th Amendment, all they want. That's just a distraction. It's nonsense. It's disrespectful. We have a White House, we have an administration that is focused on doing what is in the best interest of this country, even if some of the country, a lot of the country, doesn't realize it. I have to talk to you about the Bannon situation coming up here in a moment, and then we'll get into all of the latest on the Fusion GPS, dossier, Russia collusion stuff. That's coming up next hour. Stay with me for that. I'll be right back. Bannon is out, as some of you no doubt have seen or heard. Uh, Bannon, Steve Bannon who joined the Trump campaign late in the game, but then tried to, and for a while, I think, managed to solidify himself as a top advisor to the president. Uh, Bannon will no longer be the chairman of Breitbart.com. He stepped down, and they're they're saying that this is the result of, well, they're actually just saying that it's going to be a smooth transition and there's other things. There was, It was a distraction from their ability to be a news organization, all this other stuff. But, you know, I think it's once the president gives you a demeaning nickname, you're done. You know, I think you're out. I think you're off the island. You're voted off the island at that point. And the moment that the Trump White House, well, the moment that President Trump himself decided that Bannon was more trouble than he was worth, it was it was all over. Calling him Sloppy Steve was just the the, the last straw. I mean, that was what really uh, put an en- put an end to it. Um, looks like Bannon's going to be gone. He returned to Breitbart, and and I would not, I haven't really spent much time. I haven't really spent any time at all looking at what Breitbart's been up to these days. It's not a site that I I read much of. Um, it clearly went all in for Trump and and tried to. Uh, capitalize on that and leverage that into, well, obviously a big audience, but also big dollars. And remember, this is news is a business. Don't ever forget that. This is a this is a business that we are talking about here. Um, this is a business as a radio show, right? You got to be looking at it like that or else you're not going to be in the news for very long. And I, I think Bannon is an interesting character in many ways. I've told you before that he's Somebody who, whenever I ask those who have worked for him or with him, I, I get generally incredibly negative feedback about him. I'm told that he's a megalomaniac, that he's a monster, that he's vindictive, all this stuff. Um, I, you know, I, I have to wonder, was he able to get so close to the president because he was 
so brilliant, or was it mostly just right place, right time? And was Bannon lucky in all this, or did he really have some? Spe- did Sloppy Steve have some special sauce? I'm not sure I have an answer for you on that. I'm I'm just thinking aloud here. I read things about Bannon. I, the one one problem I, I have with this all along, I don't like people who are uh, like in Bannon's. In the case of Bannon, some of the things that he would that he would say about himself, and it was just a little too grandiose, a little too, oh, you know, I I, I can't stop reading, uh, I, I can't stop reading Herodotus in the original Greek or something, right? I mean, not that he can read ancient Greek, but you know what I'm saying. It was a, a lot of it seemed like very much self-directed PR, which always makes me a little, a, a little bit. Uh, I question. Doesn't mean look, the, the president's very good at self-directed PR too, but with Bannon. I, you know, I don't know if it was all all sizzle and no sauce or all. Yeah, I think that's the phrase, right? I don't know. All sizzle, no steak. That's what I meant to say. All sizzle, no steak. And Bannon's, uh, you know, he's, he's obviously a figure that was was completely odious to the D.C. establishment. I mean, they, they hate this guy. And he had some interesting uh, additions into the Trump campaign and, and certainly in the White House was playing an outsized role. Uh, but you got a few things that went against him here. The sloppy Steve thing, like I said, that was the end of it all. But even before that, you had Bannon backing Roy Moore in Alabama. And regardless, I always want to say irregardless, and I know you're not. that's not a thing to say, but you know, I've got to get that out of my, out of my buck lexicon. Uh, but regardless of how it all regardless of how you felt it should have gone, that was a Senate seat that the GOP never should have let go. And a lot of people, a lot of people blamed Bannon for that. And I think understandably so. I believe that there was a real sense that Bannon was uh, the one who, for whatever reason, was really pushing for Roy Moore all along. Pretty clear to me that if Mo Brooks had won that GOP primary, you'd have a really excellent a GOP senator in Alabama with Brooks, who was also very strong on immigration, which, as we've been discussing, that is the the issue du jour. That that is the center of the political, uh, on a policy level at least, the center of the political storm. So Bannon's out. Uh, I wonder if this means that he's going to fade into obscurity, whether he knows it or not, or if he'll get some second act when it comes to influence in this administration. I do think that one overlooked or generally overlooked character uh, character trait of Donald Trump is that he seems willing to bring people back into the fold. You know, he seems to be willing to give some people second chances just from what I've, I've read of him in the past. Uh, he, he People say he's been talking to Bannon on the phone and that maybe that's been continuing. Uh, but Bannon as a political genius, I think we're all past that now. That, that, that's not the case. Here, here's something that I, I can't shake from all this. If you're Steve Bannon, you're in the White This is why I couldn't forgive the Scaramucci thing either. I mean, I, I don't know, Anthony, one way or another. It's just you, you don't call a reporter and say all this crazy stuff like that. That's so undisciplined and so unwise. And with Bannon, you have kind of a similar scenario where it looks like he was Talking to Michael Wolf, gave him all these different quotes and uh, observations for the book. And at the end of the day, why? 
You know, it, it seemed like it was just ego driven. It was strategically unsound. It was unwise to do that. So I, I don't I don't buy Bannon as the great. Uh, you know, I don't buy Bannon as, as this great strategist, as like the modern political Sun Tzu, the, the Metternich, uh, Metternich of the Trump administration, the Talleyrand of Trump. Right. Nope. Or the Rasputin depends. We could go through historical figures all day here. Uh Speaking of stroke figures, have you downloaded the Shields High podcast? If you're listening, please do check it out on iTunes. It's free. It's there for you. Just go into iTunes search, type in Shields High. Guys, we've had a great surge of, of interest in folks downloading and listening the last uh, 24 hours, but really need that to continue. People are asking me, how many of these are you going to do, Buck? Honestly, it depends on how many folks listen to the first few episodes. If there's big interest, because this is a – I do – all the work for this. I do the research. I do the writing. I Obviously, it's my voice. I record the podcast. I actually edit the podcast. I do the music for the podcast. All that stuff. So it's a labor of love, but it can't just be my love. You have to be into it, too, you folks listening to this show. Uh, so please do check it out, the Shields High podcast. You can follow it on the iHeart app or iTunes. Subscribe. And please do uh, share it with a friend or 10. That would be awesome. What's the latest from Fusion GPS and was a source mentioned in Fusion GPS killed? We'll talk about that coming up. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you here. I saw the headline today and I had to immediately start asking some questions. Why, why would Diane Feinstein decide to uh, unilaterally release from the Senate Judiciary Committee the 312-page transcript of a Fusion GPS co-founder, Glenn Simpson, to release the transcript of that interview. Why would Feinstein do that? What you're seeing happening right now around all this Russia-Trump stuff is a lot of massaging the narrative. You got people that are trying to find ways to make this all make sense again. Because what we've seen recently is that the evidence is increasingly pointing toward the entire Russia collusion investigation as a farce. It's an absolute political hit. It started because of a dossier funded by a political candidate, Hillary Clinton, who wanted to beat the Republican. Right. And that would be a black eye for the FBI that I just think they flatly would never be able to come back from uh, that or, or the DOJ as well. I mean, we kind of talk about them interchangeably, but there are some interesting things in this transcript of the conversation between Fusion GPS co-founder Glenn Simpson, uh, Glenn Simpson and various members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. The biggest revelation from all this is that Fox News and others are reporting from this transcript. It's 300 pages long, so I didn't get a chance to read through it in its entirety today. But that somebody has been killed, they say, because of this Trump dossier. The assumption here would be that a source, somebody who was either named or alluded to in some way, could be connected to this document, the 
conclusion that anybody would come to here is that a source ended up getting whacked, probably in Russia by Russians based on what was in that BuzzFeed report, but who knows, could be somewhere else. Now, if that is in fact the case, a few things immediately come to mind. One, the ethics or lack thereof of BuzzFeed, for example, for publishing this should be something we don't forget about. Let's say that a vast majority of the information in that dossier was fake, was rumors, unsubstantiated is the term we use, but by that we we often just kind of mean lies. That doesn't mean that there aren't people whose names, if attached to even a fake document as sources, may not face reprisals. And so there's a seriousness that can come even from a, a fake or a forged document, or not forged in this case, but f- false reported, false reporting. And that's something that we have to keep in mind here. There's also another possibility. And I think this is, uh, I'm not going to gauge the likelihood of it right now, but let me step back for a moment. The New York Times over the Christmas break came up with this big front page story about how, you know what, actually, it was Papadopoulos, not Carter Page, because of what Papadopoulos said in a London bar to an Australian. That's what kicked off the whole Russia collusion investigation. And once that was subjected to some scrutiny and people looked at the timeline, they said, well, that doesn't really make sense. Either the New York Times was wrong and were lying about Carter Page before, or they're just trying to throw people off the scent. They're trying to muddy the waters, make it more difficult for all of us to really come to a conclusion, figure out what's going on here with all this Mueller probe stuff. It seemed like that was a smokescreen, a very sophisticated hiding of the ball hiding the truth from all of us via the New York Times. Here's what we're going to run up against increasingly with this Fusion GPS investigation. They're going to start to say, well, these are former journalists. They need to protect their sources. Their sources need to be protected from scrutiny. And and we're now going to have to take their word, I suppose, for, and this is the, keep in mind, this is the word of Glenn Simpson's lawyer, That somebody was killed because of the dossier. Well, doesn't that then raise the stakes quite a bit for whether or not we can get access to that information to really know who the sources were, what they said and what they were what they were up to? If it becomes an issue of life and death, you can see how the opportunities look, I'm just saying this is a possibility. I, I can't tell you exactly what's going on here yet because there's a lot. There's a lot of information that we still need. But claiming that a source was taken out, was killed because of the dossier is certainly one means of elevating the need for source protection for all the people that are talking about that dossier and perhaps slowing down at a minimum the revelations that we are hoping for when it comes to Fusion GPS, Glenn Simpson, all the stuff that was going on there. Remember. 
Fusion GPS was the outfit that hired Christopher Steele. Fusion GPS was paid for by the Democratic National Committee, paid for by Hillary's campaign. Fusion hired Chris Steele. Chris Steele went out and got all this information together from whatever his sources were and then met with the FBI. And, oh, by the way, uh, Nellie Orr, who worked at Fusion GPS, was the wife of Bruce Orr, who was a top five, I think, guy in the org chart at the Department of Justice. Doesn't that all look quite suspicious? Almost like maybe a Democratic oppo effort was then transferred or translated into an FBI counterintelligence investigation because of the access that certain individuals had and maybe because of the agenda they brought to bear. Another, from today, important data point that has come across from the release of this transcript uh, with the Fusion GPS founder, Glenn Simpson, talking to the House, I'm sorry, the Senate, uh, Senate committee here. And that is, quote, that the FBI had an internal Trump campaign source. This is what Steele told Simpson, who also, quote, believed Chris's information. The FBI believed Chris Steele's information might be credible because they had other intelligence that indicated the same thing. And one of those pieces of intelligence was a human source from inside the Trump organization. This is what Simpson was saying of the FBI. Quote, I think it's safe to say that, you know, at some point, probably early in 2016, I had reached a conclusion about Donald Trump as a businessman and his character, and I was opposed and I was opposed to Donald Trump. So Simpson was anti-Trump. okay, personally, he's saying I I didn't like Trump. And also saying that the FBI here had its own reasons for believing the information. Uh, This is all looking very flimsy to me in terms of the basis for what would have, what could be a legitimate FBI investigation, this is looking worse and worse all the time. I don't know what we do as a country if we end up in a place where it is absolutely clear that the Department of Justice, because of some deep state holdovers, because of pro-Obama, anti-Trump, pro-Hillary sentiment at the very top of the DOJ, that there was abuse of power that resulted in an ongoing investigation, counterintelligence investigation, that allows for the end run on the Fourth and Fifth Amendment in many ways. Uh, All of that that happened was based on flimsy opposition research. That's truly terrifying, isn't it? And I don't know what we would do about it. I think it would clearly be very bad. Well, it'd be terrible for the Russia collusion narrative, and it would be very bad for the fortunes of the Democrat Party going into the midterms and maybe well beyond that. But there's no mechanism in place to set this right. There isn't even really much in the way of accountability. At worst, you may have some, worse for them, you may have some DOJ officials or FBI officials who step down from their jobs, retire early. But what does it say about where this country is right now that not only, or at least where about half this country is, not only does it seem likely that 
the Department of Justice and the FBI was weaponized against the Trump campaign. But on top of that, the vast majority of the vast mainstream media decided that they would push a story that the campaign that had been surveilled and had been infiltrated and had had its rights violated was in fact the aggressor here. They would concoct some crazy cockamamie tale about Trump and Russia and Putin and collusion and all this stuff. It's, it is breathtaking. It is jaw-dropping. It is, oh my gosh, in its level of brazenness and in the just amount of nonsense that's piled up here and the ramifications for the country. I mean, it's it's so clear to me at this point that with all the good economic news coming in and the more I'm looking at what the projections are for 2018, you can see that the nightmare scenario is unfolding for Democrats And the nightmare scenario is a very successful Trump administration with maybe even four or five percent GDP growth in 2018. Four, three is looking likely, maybe four, maybe even five. Which we wouldn't have had in a decade. I mean, we wouldn't have had for a long time. So that is the worst nightmare of Democrats. Democrats are actively rooting against the country's interests when it comes to the Trump administration. Really no question about that. They are rooting for a recession. They are hoping for a financial downturn. They want your 401k to get wiped, not out entirely maybe, but to get a serious haircut is the polite way of the, the genteel way of saying it. And I dropped 30 or 40%. They want to see a huge stock market drop. They want to see unemployment go up. They want to see that Trump is failing because Trump's success, and I've been saying this all along, Trump's success is the Democratic Party's worst nightmare. And that's where there's such a focus on all these external issues and collusion and Mueller and all that stuff. Because even if they can't get Trump in any of that, and I don't think they will, it's a distraction from all the stuff that's going well. 844-900-2825-844-900 buck. Rolling into a quick break here. I've got a little more on that Wolf book, which I'm trying to make my way through, the Fire and Fury book, and uh, we'll talk about that and and much more coming up here in just a few. Stay with me. Here's the thing, Congressman. And, you want you want um, you want to impeach this president. You've said so. Um, and I'm, when did I say that? You've said you want to impeach the president. I want to say this about Donald Trump, who I may well be voting to impeach over the next year or two. Applause. This is a January yes. 2017 rally. Yeah. And you uh, oppose Congress's vote to certify the election results. So you, you definitely don't want him as president. I think that the media has been conflating impeachment in the 25th Amendment. Yeah, it, it's tough to keep up, isn't it? That was a Democrat congressman, Jamie Raskin of, of Maryland. I'm actually down here in Maryland right now in Baltimore. So, hey, I don't know if he represents the district I'm in right now, but I'm down in Baltimore and uh, lo- lovely folks down here. I just keep reminding, well, not reminding you so much as reminding myself of of all the different ways, I guess both, uh, all the different ways that they're trying to get this president out of office. They can't settle on one because they're all just manufactured. And they, uh, you know, that you have some saying that the the 25th Amendment is what they're going to do to take this president of office. What would that say about the system? Let's just take that approach for a second. You've got stock market at all time high. 
business community loving the Trump agenda and Trump's accomplishments so far. The deregulatory environment of the federal government is giving all kinds of helpful breathing room and and just it's great for all of us and great for our pocketbooks, great for the economy. The president now is possibly going to get some traction on foreign policy problems that the Obama administration was completely inept at dealing with. When we're talking about North Korea, the possibility of finally forcing Kim Jong-un to back down or at least force him into some kind of negotiations that are meaningful. You had the air war against the Islamic State, the rapid acceleration of airstrikes uh, that the Trump administration, that President Trump called for, also passing down the authority to the forward deployed field commander, let the guys in the field make the calls about who to hit and when to hit from the air to defeat ISIS. You had a, a much greater willingness to go after targets that were risky, because if you're not going to take risks in an air campaign, you're going to be very limited with what you can go after. And ISIS, you know, ISIS uh, folded like a cheap suit, right? Didn't take too long. So what would it say, given all the things that have happened in the last 12 months or so, and we're coming up to the official anniversary of Trump's inauguration, and, and we're going to have a big State of the Union address. That'll be fun. I'll live tweet that one or on Facebook, too, or something, so all of us can hang out together. Uh, State, of the, State of the Union is going to be an interesting night, I think. But what would it say if this president could, in fact, be not of sound mind and be so successful anyway at what he's doing? I mean, just play along for a second. I know he is of sound mind, but it's it's so outlandish and really so outrageous that you have... Democrat politicians and the media are still running with this storyline. They have no evidence of this whatsoever. They have anecdotal, uh, you know, anecdotal, this guy said to this guy that I think the president's crazy. Uh, This is high school gossip that they are pretending is high level analysis that should be guiding key decisions about the future of this country. The Democrats, just they have absolutely no shame, none, when it comes to anything Trump-related. By the way, I thought it was interesting that that Trump said today that he thinks that uh, he would beat Oprah. So, of course he does. I think Trump thinks he could beat anybody, Uh, which forces an interesting question. Okay, maybe he could. Keep in mind, everybody said that he was going to lose to Hillary. So anyone who stands up now and says, oh, so-and-so would crush you in a head-to-head presidential race. I don't know who that would be. A lot of folks out there are very quick to to count out the Donald. And he is not in any way uh, stepping back from the notion of a possible Oprah. Here we have we have Oprah's friend, right? Gail King saying that it's possible. Play, play clip 13, please, Brendan. I do think this, though, guys, I do think she's intrigued by the idea. I do think that. I also know that after years of watching the Oprah show, you always have the right to change your mind. I don't think at this point she is actually considering it. But listen, there are people who are who said they want to be her campaign manager, who want to uh, quit their jobs and campaign for her. She loves this country and would like to be of service in some way. But I don't think that she is actively for the record. That is a I don't think she's actively considering it. She's not actively considering it, but she isn't saying no either. I would just say this, and this would be true of Trump as well. 
so I, I give him a lot of credit for being willing to do this. If I were worth a billion dollars, if I were worth a hundred million dollars, you know, if I were worth any amount of money that basically would mean that I wouldn't have to work another day in my life, whatever that number is, I, I would never get in. I would never want to run for office or get involved in politics. Why all the headaches? Life is complicated enough. I'd want to focus on family and doing what I love and being around people that inspire me, make me, uh, you know, a better person and just enjoying my life. I would have no interest whatsoever. So uh, Oprah, Trump, any of them, I I can't imagine wanting to run for any kind of elected office with that kind of money. Uh, But I guess people feel compelled to serve, serve the country. So there you have it. Rolling the break. I, I got a little more on that Wolf book. So we'll talk about that in just a few. Stay with me. Busy day in the world of politics, my friends. A lot going on. We've got Ned Ryan with us now to help make sense of it. He is the founder and CEO of American Majority Action, also a former presidential writer for President George W. Bush. Ned, great to have you back, buddy. Happy 2018. Yeah, good to be back with you, Buck, and same to you. It's, uh, I think, going to be a very interesting year. If the first week of 2018 has given us any indication... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but, but before we get to that, were you were you uh, down in Cabo working on your tan or something over the break? Anything exciting? No, you know, uh, I we, we, we slept the kids out to the West Coast, had uh, a week out in Southern California with my younger sister and some other family members, and then, uh, you know, got back to the struggle. Sounds sounds uh, sounds lovely, my friend. So this week, in, in all things, I was going to say in all things <laughs> Trump, but let's say in all things America. What are we seeing right now, Ned? We're, we're seeing a, uh, a book, uh, Fire and Fury, that appears to be, at best, very sloppily done. Uh, at worst, perhaps, uh, you know, somewhat fictional. And I think we've seen, seen that book already starting to fall apart. And especially when you see Michael Wolf out there claiming on television that his hope is that this, this book will bring down the Trump presidency. So I think this book that a lot of people on the left were, were holding on to in great hopes that somehow it showed and people would believe that Trump was mentally unfit for the White House and to be in charge. Uh, I think you're starting to see that fall apart. Uh, you're starting to see things heat up with this whole fusion GPS uh, investigation buck. I'm telling you, end of last week, some huge things broke on regards to fusion GPS. The Trump denied fusion's attempts to block uh, the House Intelligence Committee getting their bank records, which is huge. Uh, I've been convinced that they paid journalists. It looks like I think four journalists were being paid. Uh, it looks like there might be media companies that had some financial relationship with Fusion, Fusion so that's huge. And then obviously Chuck Grassley and Lindsey Graham uh, recommended that Christopher Steele, the author of the fake dossier, the Steele dossier, would uh, need to have a, have, have a criminal investigation. So really interesting to see. And on top of that, uh, all of these witnesses from the DOJ and the FBI that uh, have been stonewalled uh, to come, in, you know, been stonewalling to not come in front of the House Intelligence Committee, a deal was struck in which. Bruce Orr, Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, and all of these people that I think played a role in this this bogus Trump-Russia investigation are going to come in front of the House Intelligence Committee under oath in the month of January. And I think that's a huge step in the right direction to, to truly understand what went on with this Trump-Russia investigation and this fake dossier. Now, in terms of the agenda, uh, we've been talking about immigration today on the show. I just wanted to know what's your take. I mean, Trump today had a, it was kind of an interesting meeting today. Uh, you know what? I thought it was actually a brilliant meeting. Again, I, I viewed it as somewhat of a response to this whole Michael Wolf charge, uh, mentally unfit for the White House. 45 minutes, 
you know, he looked like he was enjoying himself, was, was cracking jokes, had a good grasp of the issue. I think the thing that Trump has to be very careful about is understanding his base obviously expects a physical wall. And it, it was good to see him say, you know, there's no, if, there's, if there's no wall, there's no DACA. But I think he needs to put in, list, in place at least a, a list of certain things. We, if we're going to get a, a DACA um, compromise, there needs to be, I would like to see, voter ID law. We need to end chain migration. We need to end this stupid visa lottery uh, approach to immigration. And then I, I would argue probably, Buck, maybe the right step is to say all the Dreamers get green cards. It's typically about a five-year process then to become a U.S. citizen. There's got to be something along those lines, and I think you can then walk away and people say, okay, not everybody's happy again in, in politics when you reach a compromise. Both parties typically walk away with something that they wanted but not entirely satisfied. So I think he just has to be very careful in laying out, here are my minimum expectations, because he has to understand the base is watching very closely, and they have expectations. Speaking of Ned Ryan, founder and CEO of American Majority Action. Ned, uh, I feel like the the Wolf, just going back to the Wolf book for a second, this fire and fury uh, screed yep. that's out there. I, I'm I'm also going to tell you, I'm four chapters into it. I haven't finished it yet. i got other things i got to read, too. It makes for good reading, uh, just because it's right. it's interesting stuff. But I also believe that at this point, the president has really been inoculated against these kinds of attacks because uh, there have been so many lies. There's uh, there's obvious uh, problems with the truth in this book, and I just think that the, the, they're going to keep trying this because look, it sells books, it gets headlines. But in terms right. of bringing down the presidency, I think they're going to have no. to do a lot better and a lot more than. Uh, there's squabbling in the White House, and people think Trump is Trump is crazy and eats too many hamburgers and watches too much TV. It's just not going to do it. No, it's not going to do it. First of all, I mean that that's kind of the standard for most White Houses. There's a certain amount of chaos. There's big personalities. <laughs> there's a lot of burgers, a lot of TV watching. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? There's just competing interests, so there's always this, you know palace intrigue. I mean, first of all, you're not going to persuade anybody that, tr- that supports Trump right now that somehow this book is going to change their mind. People that already didn't like Trump are the ones saying, oh, we find this book fascinating and and find it believable. I mean, at the same time, too, speaking about inoculating himself, Buck, I think people look at the first year of the Trump presidency and go, you know what? That was a pretty solid first year. We got a SCOTUS nominee that's a rock star in Neil Gorsuch, 12 circuit court judges, over 1,500 regulations, either cut or delayed. I think it was 2 million new jobs, a stock market that now is over 25,000. A tax bill that got you know passed through that I think is is going to I think it's a solid double. It's going to have benefit for everybody though. They're going to look at that and go, uh, if this is uh, mental unfitness, I'll take another dose of that, please. What do you think about Oprah? What do you think about The Rock, presidential candidates v. Trump? <laughs> she, she she she's not running, uh, and, and the <laughs> she's, reason she's not running. Yeah. First of all, they're desperate to find because it, you know what this really shows, Buck. In my mind, this whole crying out for Oprah in the last forty-eight hours really does show how leaderless the Democrat Party is. That so many people were saying Oprah for president in twenty twenty. She's not going to do it. I mean, it is a brutal grind. You have to want it. You have to be willing to put yourself through. You know this this microscope of every detail of your life being examined and looked at. I just don't see her doing that. You know, I think this is, but this highlights again the real question: Who is going to be the standard bearer for Democrats in 2020? And I know that they've talked about. I think it's 15 or 20 names that are being tossed around. I have a hard time believing that they're going to have a really stellar candidate in 2020. And quite frankly, if Trump's tax, if the cuts continue to show 
potentially 4% GDP in, in multiple quarters. You might see a stock market getting to 26 or 27,000. Wages go up, jobs go up. I'm not entirely sure what they run on. Yeah, I would wonder at this point when, well, I would wonder in general when Democrats actually have to come up with some kind of, of an alternative <laughs> to ideas. Trump. There's been so, yeah, ideas. There's been so much focus <laughs> And I really do believe it is. I'm not saying there aren't Democrats who have ideas, whether they're good or bad is another thing. But I'm not saying that there aren't uh, clear places where Democrats could push for policies that differ for uh, differ with Republicans. But there's such a focus. I mean, all the oxygen in the room is taken up by this 25th Amendment, Russia, Trump collusion right. stuff, all this that I feel like that has become the Democrat Party's platform. No, it really has. And, and I made the argument again in the 2018 midterms. You know, there are a lot of people saying, oh, the Democrats are going to take back the House. They, they might take back the Senate. I'm of the opinion right now, if all they're running on is impeachment and resistance and the 25th Amendment, all these things, I think the American people are going to look at their pocketbooks. They're going to look at the jobs. They're going to look at the market and go, eh, we kind of like life as it is. We kind of think Republicans should have another crack at this. So, again, it's trying to find out – what are the issues that the American people care about? And this, is the, this has been the problem of the Democrat Party in recent times, Buck. The reason that Donald Trump was able to get millions and millions of Obama voters to vote for him is because he was actually talking about the issues that were important to the voters uh, in, in regards to jobs and security and all of these things. And so Democrats are going to have to figure out what are the issues that actually appeal to the average working class American that are going to get them to come back and vote for us. And I'm right now, I'm not seeing them talking about any issues that actually appeal to the working class. They better figure it out or they're going to go towards that path of what I've said is the coastal regional party and really be in the in the wilderness for years to come. Yeah, I mean, they, they can't they can't outmaneuver Republicans on tax cuts because they were so opposed to the tax cuts. They can't not uh, one outmane- Democrat voted for it. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they can't outmaneuver Republicans, I think, at a national level race on immigration if trump sticks to his immigration promises because i think that unrestricted and continued immigration is not uh, not popular at the national level despite what democrats may think or pretend to think although i would note that they always back off of their most open borders-esque policies when push comes to shove uh but look i i think it's i've been saying this ned i think it's going to be a great I think 2018 is going to be a great year for the country, a great year for the economy, and I think it's going to show that Trump is getting it done. He, he, he is, and you can sense, I mean, yeah, his speech yesterday in Nashville, Buck, I thought was excellent. It showed excellent discipline. It was a victory lap showing what he had done, and then he laid out a vision for the, for the rural uh, areas in this country, for the farmers. It was very disciplined. He stayed on message. I'm like, you know what? If he does that through all of 2018, I could see this being a very good year, not only for Trump, but for Republicans as a whole. And I think the thing that's interesting, Buck, nothing succeeds like success. And when you see some of these Republicans on the Hill that have been a little bit hesitant to embrace him, they're kind of starting to look at themselves going, you know what, this guy's succeeding. We might as well start to embrace him. You're starting to see a little bit of shift in this mentality here in D.C. in their approach to Trump. I got to tell you, the, the Senate map favors Republicans in 2018. I think Republicans will probably lose some seats in the House, but I think they can maintain it. And then you go into 2019 and you take another crack at some big policy ideas. I think I think it could be a very good future for the Republican Party, but they have to be very careful on this immigration debate. This book is not about my impression of the president. I, I came into this with no agenda. I continue to have no political Fair agenda. Fair enough. 
No agenda, the author of Fire and Fury says. Not about him, man. Not about politics. You know, he's just he's just at the party, man. He's just like, hey, I'm just going to drink whatever's there. I'm not trying to, like, make trouble or anything. Uh, I don't think that's uh, an honest description of what Mr. Wolf's intentions are here. But nonetheless, he's allowed to say it. Few interesting things from his book tour, which I should note now it's, you know, the president was uh, initially very annoyed by it, which meant that a lot of a lot of attention and press on the book at this point, you know, whether I talk about it or not on radio is, a, is not going to matter to the bottom line of, the, of that book. So I feel like it's the uh, whether it's a pile on or not doesn't matter. But it does give us a little bit more of an insight into what is acceptable to the media in terms of truth, in terms of accuracy when it comes to Trump. And the short answer is, eh, they can make it up as they go along. If it rings true, bro, it is true. It's like if you find your own truth, that's like what's true for you to do because it's you. And these are the things that you wouldn't expect people that make a living in the content and writing and analysis business would be asserting publicly. And yet here we are. Wolf said, for example, that uh, there are inaccuracies in the book. Play clip nine, please. Some inaccuracies in the book, like, but not complete. Like, were you, first of all, in a rush to get this to print for a lot of reasons? Well, yeah, I mean, this book was reported and written in less than a year. Yeah, okay. So, you know, yeah. this so, is, remember, this history is moving pretty fast. Yeah. So your, um, your uh, kind of critics here will we'll have some material to work with. There's misspellings. Do your critics but, run with that? Crit- yeah, they run with these little specific things. But they run with it. Getting, oh. getting a yeah. part of a story wrong here or getting something else. And, some, and sometimes, you know, you know, you're dependent on your sources there. And, and right. sometimes your sources. Right. Now, I don't want to say who my source was in that particular okay. um, right. thing, except that. But sometimes the sources get it, yeah, a little yeah. off. Yeah, you know, sometimes the source is like, hey, you know, I think it's great when you stack your hair up to the ceiling and play electric guitar and think you're in a rock band. Sources tell me that, man. I'm Joe Scarborough. Maybe the sources are wrong, but, you know, they're telling me. I I, I still am, am befuddled as to why anybody watches that show. Uh, I, I know morning morning shows aren't necessarily the place to go for hard-hitting uh, analysis and political commentary and all that but uh, the morning joe show it's just so smug it kind of reminds me of the the insecure but sort of cool kids in high school who were mean to the other kids and you could always tell who the, the really lame kids were the ones that wanted to be near the insecure mean kids table and so they would be mean to kids to kind of show off for them that's what the Morning Joe show reminds me of. It's just smug and smarmy and, you know, yeah, we're just awesome. Ugh. Anyway, Wolf, so Fire and Fury's got inaccuracies in it. As a somebody who does a lot of writing and speaking and, you know, I, I can tell you this. When I go on Fox and I say something and it's even maybe uh, close to be considered not completely spot on, and I would never say anything intentionally inaccurate, but if, I, if I've made something that even could in the the slightest bit be be factually inaccurate or a mistake i i I really am this is gonna sound a little intense i have it keeps me up it really bothers me uh you know it really upsets me because i feel like i have an obligation 
when I'm given the opportunity to address the people that I do, whether here on radio or on TV, just just bring it 100% every time and to really be squared away. And the fact that Wolf has written this book and he's just coming out saying, you know, well, yes, there, there are inaccuracies in my book, but, you know, it's overall true. I, I don't I got to hear what Wolf sounds like again. That's I was just making up a British accent for the guy for no reason. I mean, he's British, but I don't know what he really sounds. There's so many different British accents, as we all know. Uh, he had to defend his credit. Play, play clip 10, please. A little more wolf time. Well, let me ask you, did you talk to the president? Did you interview him for this book? I, 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 absolutely, I absolutely spoke to the president, whether he realized it was an interview or not. Um, I, I don't know, but it certainly was not off the record. I am certainly and absolutely in every way comfortable with everything I've reported in this book. Would you release any of those recordings since your credibility is being questioned? I, my, my credibility is being questioned by a man who has less credibility than perhaps anyone who has ever walked on earth at this point. Clearly that guy does not have a British accent. So I don't know why I thought that, but let's just get past it. It's, you know, it's been a long day. What could I tell you? Sometimes, see, it's like I made a mistake, and I'm, I'm owning up to it right away, although making fun of people with voices on radio, with doing voices that are impressions on radio, is I think it's a mistake we can all accept. I mean, technically speaking, what happened is not what Hillary sounds like, but you all know it captures the essence of Hillary. If it rings true, it is true when it comes to Hillary Clinton's voice. It's terrible! Um, then you also have Wolf making quite clear that he despises the president. Uh, he does not like Donald Trump. And he also said that the president himself is a leaker. Play 12. Anyone in there protecting Donald Trump? Anyone feel like maybe they shouldn't be leaking to the press about what's going on inside the White no, House? No, because remember, the biggest leaker was Donald Trump. I, I mean, you know, many of the leaks that he would come out and rail against started because he gets on the phone at night with his coterie of... of of friends and, and, and billionaires and motormouths. So saying that the, the pre, I mean, you read some of the stuff in this book and I haven't been able to finish it yet. Cause I, I got a lot of other things that I'm reading and going through every day, but Trump is the biggest leaker, including all the stuff that's so rabidly anti-Trump that's in this book. Anyway, I can't tell you to, I'm reading the book so you don't have to. That's, that's one of the services that I provide here in the freedom. Hut. I'm, going through all this so that you guys don't have to spend your time doing it. Coming up, I'm going to talk to you about the flu and flu shots and influenza and the possibility of a pandemic. So that's going to be interesting. And uh, also maybe some talk about gluten and some other things. Stay with me for that. This is just classic. You know, I haven't gotten flu shots in previous years. And this year, yeah, I had two things going on. One is that last year, and and some of you, well, actually, no, I wasn't on air on uh, premiere at least last year when this happened. But I got the flu uh, right around, well, it was almost exactly 12 months ago. It was right in the middle of January. And I got rocked. I mean, I got that flu. I actually remember I went over to, Fo to uh, Fox and Friends on the weekend on a Saturday, and I was supposed to be in some kind of a, of a debate segment. And I just, it was very early in the morning. I had to get up at 5 a.m. or something like that on a Saturday. And I just remember you know, going over and and feeling kind of out of it and not, and I, th I thought I must just be tired. And then I'm sitting there, and then I realized as I was sitting there, 
Um, I'm shaking kind of for no reason, and I'm also sweating at the same time, and I never get nervous about TV or radio, so it's not that. Uh, Why am I sweating? Why am I shaking? Why does it feel so cold in here? And then I feel hot a second later, and my forehead's really hot. Oh, my gosh, I have the flu. I mean, I figured it out in the middle of the segment, basically, or or right before I went on TV. I, I realized, oh, oh, no, here I am. Wasn't uh, well. It, I felt worse, but it, it didn't look as bad as the time when I was doing the Judge Janine show, and there were some lights that they had blasting on my face. And she likes a very warm set, and they just kept me there. And I was just drenched in sweat during the interview. And every time the camera panned away from me, I had to just like take my my hand and flop a big mess of sweat off my forehead. Uh, that was pretty gross. I know you're, you're visualizing that it, it did not look great on TV either, but this is what happens. You know, TV, it's not, as not a, it's not a glamorous business folks. It's really not. Uh, but I, I got the flu last year. I had 102 fever, the whole thing. I actually, I was kind of a baby. I actually went to one of those urgent care places just cause I, I don't know what I, I knew I had the flu and they gave me the test and yeah, I had the flu last year. So that happened, and I really don't want to miss another week for flu. And this year, Miss Molly was like, you know what, honey? You just need to get a flu shot. Don't don't be a wimp. It's not going to hurt. And so we actually went together, and I got my flu shot. And now I find out, because I just read things all the time, that they estimate, and they don't really know, but they estimate that the flu vaccine this year is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 10% effective against the dominant strain of influenza that has already hit Australia because their flu season was four or five months ago. It's their winter. And now it's going to be, it's already hitting us. I mean, they've already started to see some of the headlines about this. Uh, it's just, it's just getting started here in this country though. And sure enough, with the new flu season comes the editorials that you can read, and I just did before I came on air, which is why I'm talking to you about this now, where they point out that we worry so much, well, not you and me, but people worry about what's going to happen because of climate change. They worry about what the, you know, what, what the future of you know, global currency will be. There are things that, well, that's actually a real worry, but climate change, that's not really something that I would be losing any sleep over under any circumstances. But the flu, if you look at the numbers from the past and you look at uh, infectious disease and what we are doing to stop it, there's real cause for, for concern there. And the, the numbers don't lie. I mean, back in 1918, the Spanish flu killed somewhere between 50 and 100 million people around the world, which is astonishing when you also think about the world had many fewer, you know, many fewer people in 1918 than it does today. A few billion less, I think. So that's that's already happened, and that was that happened not in living memory, really. Although I don't know where there there probably are a few people left who we were alive during that, but you know, it wasn't that long ago. Certainly in our uh, parents and grandparents' memories, they know they remember the Spanish flu epidemic. And no surprise here, the government, which we're always talking about, what is it spending money on, what's it doing, spends very little money on research about infectious disease and the flu and all this other stuff. The government's actually not particularly interested in this stuff. They 
have a budget for vaccines for influenza of, well, in 2017, uh, $43 million that were that was spent for an, an all-encompassing flu vaccine that would work against all of it. Uh, the NIH, according to this, this piece uh, in the New York Times, has publicly de- de- declared developing a vaccine a priority, but it only has about $32 million in research this year, uh, in research funds this year, which is just not a lot of money. Uh, the author here contrasts that HIV, which is obviously a very important uh, area for medical discovery as well for vaccination, gets a billion dollars a year. So a whole lot more money, for example, goes into HIV vaccine research than goes into influenza research. And you do have the very real possibility of a pandemic breaking out that kills tens, maybe even hundreds of millions of people around the world. It's no surprise, I'm sure, to many of you that it it seems likely that this will not be dealt with, that this uh, possibility of a pandemic flu, pandemic influenza, is just going to be left until it's already a problem. And then, as you know, it's too late. But I, I am not good around people who are sick uh, i do not i do not enjoy it when i'm on the subway and someone next to me starts with the hacking cough or the sneezing you're, you're exposed to a lot of a lot of folks with all kinds of germ stuff going on when you're in the subways in new york it's just the way it is you're coming across a lot of people and i'm i'm just annoyed that one it, it seems like the vaccine that i got this year and i don't even no, well, maybe we'll get into a vax discussion in a second. The vaccine I got this year looks like it's going to be almost entirely ineffective in preventing the flu. So if I end up doing the show, I mean, I've done radio before where I have been so sick. And the one thing about radio that's great is that you, as long as you have a voice, you can do it. That's also one of the things about radio that can be torturous because, y- you know, y- you can look like hell and feel like hell, but if your voice works, you're still expected to do your job. One of the only exceptions to that that ever would have uh, happened, actually, story that some of you will have heard me tell before, but I like telling it. The first time I was ever going to fill in for Rush Limbaugh, which, as you can imagine, as a young radio host, there is uh, there's a tremendous honor in that opportunity. I was tremendously honored to have that opportunity to get to, well, play for Michael Jordan's team, so to speak, for a day, the Michael Jordan of radio, Rush Limbaugh, or is he the LeBron James of radio? I don't know. Who is the greatest basketball player of all time? Is it LeBron or Michael Jordan? A discussion that we can continue another time. But I I remember I was going to do it, and I think for the first and only time in my life, at least that I can remember, I I had entirely lost my voice. I had a cold. It seemed like it was going away, but then actually the vocal cords dried out and got swollen. And I woke up the morning before the radio show with no voice at all. I could not speak at all. And it was I knew people would think, oh, he must be backing out because it's too much pressure. He's going to wimp out. And the one thing I'll say about media is I don't wimp out. I don't wimp out on TV. I don't wimp out on radio. Uh, you know, that's never... I don't get nervous and I don't wimp out. Uh, there are other things that I can work on, should work on, and could maybe do a better job of, but definitely uh, uh, having any kind of a, a, a faint heart when it comes to standing uh, standing out there and, and putting it out there, that's not the problem. 
But I knew people wouldn't think that if I was like, oh, I lost my voice. I, I can't do Russian show because I lost my voice. You know, nobody was going to believe that. So I had to get a steroid injection. And yes, I will tell you in Forrest Gump uh, style, in the buttocks. I had to get a steroid injection in the buttocks so that my vocal cords could open up enough because of the anti-inflammatory effects of the steroid injection so that I could do the show. And it was a limited time uh, for me to do the show, meaning that you get the steroid shot and then you only had about four hours and I had to time it perfectly. So I did that show and it was not my greatest show ever. I mean, I understand that, but I could barely speak, you know, a few hours before I went on air. So that's just my story that I wanted to tell you. As for the flu and pandemics and everything else, we're not, I'm, I'm annoyed because, well, it's more than annoyed. I'm deeply concerned. We're not going to do anything about this until it's too late, and then it will be too late. And this is a real worry. This and also antibiotic-resistant bacteria are the things that, that get me freaked out. Because once this, once this stuff gets really bad, you're one mutation away when you're talking about influenza. You're one mutation of that strain away from having a massive problem on your hands. Oh, and I would note, uh, The Strain is a show that I just finished recently, and maybe I'll talk to you about that on Friday. Some really good stuff in it, but some really not-so-good stuff from from my perspective. Uh, so, I am going to roll into a break now, but let me just say, I'm I'm not sure I'm going to get the flu vaccine next year. One one show here, we will have to talk about vaccinations, and I will, and I will note that that's because on the uh, older, uh, well, in my earlier radio days, I talked about vaccinations once on the show. I, I think I got more emails, including very angry emails, on that topic than anything else that I... And I talk about some controversial stuff here. I think I got more emails on that topic than maybe anything else. <laughs> it got people... Woo, people get, get uh, feisty over their vaccination views. It was pretty amazing. Uh, so another day we'll tackle that one. For now, I'm just talking about the flu vaccination and how I'm I'm not sure I'm going to get it next. We'll see. Maybe maybe because I'm whining to you about this now, I'll get through this flu season without having any problem. Maybe I'll be able to say to you, you know what? It actually was worth it. Uh, and who knows? You don't ever really know if it's your immunity that protected you, if you just have a good, strong immune system. I find, by the way, that getting enough sleep and limiting your stress and eating well is probably the... Most important thing for for staying healthy. It's not exactly a newsflash, I know, but there you have it. Influenza. It's going to be a rough season, everybody, so yeah, wash your hands, I guess. We'll be right back. Stay with me. You know, occasionally, team, there'll be something in the New York Times on the editorial page that's actually worth reading. And even from David Brooks, Roth Douthat writes some pretty good stuff. Uh, and when he hits it, sometimes he can really hit it out of the park but uh, once in a while david brooks who is a kind of milk toast quasi uh, quasi republican he's certainly not conservative he's really a, a centrist democrat who occasionally has a, a couple of critical words for progressivism which for the new york times means that he's like a fire fire breathing right wing uh, lunatic but it was a it was a good piece that he wrote on how the anti-Trump movement is getting dumber. 
And I think it's important that we at least note this This is going on because I'm seeing it happen now all the time. I, I've seen exchanges now, one after another, including with people whom I would think are generally pretty smart, pretty together, pretty savvy, uh, but they will, in response to clearly sound decision-making by the Trump administration or in response to good news that comes out of some Trump White House-related you know, situation, they'll always find a way that it's bad. They'll always find a way that it's negative. In fact, they will even suggest that it doesn't matter if Trump, or not even suggest, they will say it doesn't matter if Trump does something that's good. They believe that he's so bad that it overshadows and nullifies all the good things that he may be doing. Now, if there was a more clear way for it to be stated that anti-Trump folks have completely lost their minds, I don't know what it would be. But they are operating from a place of they're operating from a place of certainty in Trump's wrongness and and evil that cannot even take into account new information about whether or not uh, some, something specifically that Trump has done was a good thing or a bad thing. And I, I, I just find it really astonishing. And look, David Brooks is writing about it. And he's saying it's true because it is true. Uh, he sees it as well. And he's anti-Trump, I should note. So you've got anti-Trump people who are starting to finally see that things have taken a turn for the worse with the anti-Trump movement. Uh, and they just don't really look at things objectively at all. It doesn't matter what it is. If Trump's involved, it has to be bad. And if Trump's involved, there must be some way of viewing it as as the, either the wrong decision or irrelevant. That's another thing. It's irrelevant uh, because they are so opposed to him. I, I don't know. Look, Bill Kristol falls into this uh, realm. There are a few for whom anything that opposes Trump, well, they're part of the hashtag resistance. It's just about opposition to Trump. It's not about disagreeing with him on any specific issue. It's not about having different policy goals. It is just all out opposition to the Trump administration and that Brooks piece in the New York Times comes alongside something that I, I really had a hard time believing until I actually read the news story on it that showed that it, it was it was in fact the case. And that is that the Committee for the Protection of Journalists, the uh, the group that is all about press freedom, they have named and, and they're supposed to be concern with people who are imprisoned who are journalists around the world. The Committee to Protect Journalists has named President Trump the winner of its overall achievement in undermining Global Press Freedom Award in its press oppressors uh, decisions or awards that it made on Monday. So they're saying that that Donald Trump in a in a world, let's just look at this for a second for what it is, in a world that includes Erdogan's Turkey in a world that includes Kim Jong-un's North Korea, the mullahs of Tehran, the Guardian Council, running that theocracy of Islamist revolution. Uh, I, I go down the list. So many different countries. Look, I mean, you can't even... You know, Thailand's a nice country with lots of really wonderful and lovely people, but you, know, you can't insult the king or else you go to prison for a long time. You know, there are plenty of places where you don't have 
anything even approaching press freedom. And there are plenty of places around the world that we could talk about where journalists are routinely thrown into prison. In Russia, they're just disappeared, right? Journalists mysteriously turn up dead. You know, oh, look, the journalist that was investigating corruption of senior Russian officials. That's a very dangerous job. uh, That's a very dangerous job for anybody to do. That's not what you want your job description to be if you're looking for longevity. And Trump is the guy that the Committee for the Protection of Journalists is singling out as a danger to press freedom. This is all part of the Trump resistance to just getting dumber. You know, if, if they want to oppose Trump because they dis, they disagree with tax cuts or they disagree with his immigration policy, if they don't like his personal style and all that, I get it. But the moment that anyone surrenders their willingness and ability to evaluate individual actions on the merits, they're no longer somebody whose opinion should be taken seriously. You know, I I was willing to say, you know, a perfect example about this was I had a, a very few people that I saw when uh, under the Obama administration, Osama bin Laden was killed. Now, yeah, Obama acted like he was the one that went in there and went through the compound, you know, kicking in doors and everything. He, he was a little too, look at me, I'm so great, when we know it was a SEAL team and it was the United States military and the intelligence community that was responsible for taking up in London. But he was president. The president gets a degree, a share of the credit. I understand that. I saw a few people who were like, well, you know, it's not just because Obama did it. I mean, anybody would have done it. I'm like, you know, all right, I understand that that's probably true at some level, but let's not pretend that this isn't a win for the, that that wasn't a win for the Obama administration. And what you're seeing now is on the anti-Trump side of things, that viewpoint of I can of people will find a way the res, the hashtag resistance will find a way to hate whatever Trump does has turned into a form of psychosis. People have just lost it. You know, Trump can do exactly what Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer would want him to do. And he's still a fascist, a racist, a bigot, a Russian double agent, you know, whatever. Right. All the all of those things. Um, and it's just indicative of what Brooks was saying, which is the anti-Trump movement is just getting dumb now. The anti-Trump movement is is being overtaken by not just hysteria, but a level of intellectual sloppiness that means that the hashtag resistance is just becoming a joke. Now, we have to take them seriously because they're trying to stop the president and they are going to push for action against the president that I believe is very harmful in this year. But you can see that the bottom line here is, yeah, the hashtag resistance is getting pretty dumb. And even David Brooks of the New York Times sees it. Team Buck roll call coming up from Baltimore, team. I'll be right back. Well, team, we're getting close to time to close up the Freedom Hut for the night. Thank you so much for joining me here on the show. And a a big thanks to... Everyone here at WCBM in Baltimore for hosting me for the evening. Very much appreciated. Very kind and, and neighborly of them to give me a, a radio perch for the, for the evening, for the afternoon. So big thanks to WCBM Radio. And I uh, now wanted to get into a little bit of Team Buck Roll Call. Because, I, first of all, I like this name, which comes from all of you. There seem to be several of you who were proponents of roll call as a 
replacement for Speaks. And I agree with it, and that's why we're here, and that's why the Bucks Exxon Show is an evolution of sorts. We take your feedback into account and make changes as we go. So let's get into it again. Wow, Elizabeth writes in, and she has changed. Wow, Elizabeth, I am... I am uh, humbled and uh, and greatly appreciate this. Her Facebook logo is, in fact, the Shields High logo, or rather her Facebook avatar. Well, thank you, Liz. That's a big vote of confidence. I appreciate it. Uh, She goes, hey, um, we absolutely love the first episode. I was especially happy that our 13-year-old daughter, Misty, was into the podcast. Also, as of last semester, history became her favorite class. I'm rooting for that to be her major in college. Uh, see you as always shields high well Liz thank you so much and I was a political science major at Amherst and I always leave out the cum laude because one why do people add that in right although I guess that is now a humble brag Uh, but two I think 40 percent or 50 percent of my class graduated with honors so if half the class gets a trophy I feel like everybody pretty much gets a trophy so I usually leave that out but I uh, I don't put it on resumes and stuff. Or if I do, I shouldn't. I should correct myself. My my point here, if I can find one, if I have a point, which I'm not sure I do. It's late in the day, folks. It's been a long one. I did a little travel down to Baltimore to see some colleagues and friends down in the Baltimore area today. My point is that uh, I wish I'd been a history major. My little brother, who is uh, in- incredibly smart and, uh, and and a really talented student, Uh, He was a history major, and I kind of wish that I had been a history major, too, because the political science stuff, I like it, but I'll be honest with you, I always found the the more, quote, scientific aspects of poli-sci to be a little little forced, a little maybe even worthless. You you do this regression analysis, and they, they try to make something seem, quote, scientific that is not, in fact, a science. It is definitely... Politics is an art form. Oh, yes, politics is an art form. So I wish I had spent more of my time probably doing history um, instead of a focus on um, political science. Although I, d- I did a lot of both. I mean, I those of you who have listened to the Shields High podcast, if you're wondering, I studied history of the Middle East in college, a whole, whole bunch of Middle East history classes, uh, also specifically the Crusades. It's been a little while, so I've had to do some brushing up on it. I've changed my mind about whether I would do the Crusades as a separate series within Shields High. I think Shields High Series 1 is going to, uh, or what it would be, Um, Season 1 is what I'm trying to say. Shields High Season 1 will have the great battles between uh, East and West, Cross and Crescent, including Malta, Lepanto, uh, Vienna, those are all coming up, but I also feel like we need to cover some of the Crusades because it's too much of a jump, in my mind, to go from the Battle of Tours in 732 in the middle of France to, oh, by the way, now let's talk about the Siege of Malta, right? Well, let's get into, let's get into the 1560s. That, that's quite a bit of time has passed, so I want to fill in a little bit more of those gaps, which means that I will be dusting off a well, a few books that I still have from my college studies on the Crusades. So there there you have it. Uh, next on our roll call for tonight, Joseph uh, writes, 
Uh, Geronimo was Apache, not Navajo. Ha, huh, I got, oh no, this is an old one. I already read that a while ago. I got to correct the bucks. Or you, yes, sir. I'm Apologies for getting Geronimo wrong. Um, but he, he asked me about whether Shields High, this is the new message. That was an older message before. Shields High app on Android. Uh, I don't know if we are on Android specifically with the Shields High podcast. I would have to check that. And technology is not something in which I excel. So I'll have to ask the team and I will find out. Uh, Denny with the following. Uh, Hi, Buck. Enjoying the show as always. I heard you have new affiliates. Do you have a list of affiliates posted online somewhere? Hashtag Shields High. Denny, I think we do have an affiliate list, but there's been a lot of flux and changes with it over the last year or so. I don't know if it's completely up to date. Uh, I can tell you that uh, we just added, I'm very pleased to tell you all that we are in the Austin area now on the airwaves uh, with KLBJ, which is a fantastic heritage uh, radio station, great call letters, and I'm very uh, honored and pleased that uh, we get to have our show, have this show carried now on KLBJ in Austin. So if you're listening, by the way, on the app or something in the Austin area, just so you know, if you're in the car and you want to listen on the radio, uh, you can listen on KLBJ. So that's one new affiliate. We have another uh, great affiliate that will be joining us in a little bit, but it's I cannot announce it yet. But let's just say it's a signal that covers an entire state. So we're very pleased to be adding them into the mix. Uh, Jennifer. Hi, Buck. Love the show. I never miss a podcast and also enjoyed the first episode of Shields High. Nicely done. Just thought I'd mention that Connie Britton's Poverty is Sexist shirt at the Globes is a nod to the One Campaign, which advocates for programs that promote education, deeds prevention, and treatment, etc., in Africa and elsewhere, just so you know. Uh, Okay, but I, I mean, I'm sure maybe it's a nod to a campaign that does good things. But poverty is sexist as a slogan is not that that doesn't seem sensible to me still, regardless of what she was trying to say. I, I still don't understand why that is uh, a useful thing to write on a T-shirt. So I I stand behind my analysis, but I do thank you for pointing out something on that uh, for me to know. All right. Uh, we got Ryan Ryan writing in from downrange. He, he's in the Middle East right now. I'm home on, oh no, he's back home, <laughs> sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm home on leave and life is great. Just to send you an email about what happened. Uh, I'm coming out of the shower with your podcast playing on my phone. I walk into the kitchen and find my girlfriend listening to your podcast on her phone while cooking me breakfast. Somehow, I found a girl who will cook me bacon and listen to Buck Sexton. Uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you and yours, brother, respectfully, Ryan in Iraq, although he's home on leave now. Uh, Ryan, great story, uh, and obviously put a ring on it, my man. She likes bacon and Buck Sexton. It does not get better than that. You can be uh, certain of it. Uh, so there you have it. AL, and thank you for your service, by the way, Ryan. Uh, AL writes in, just want to let you know that I've configured an alarm in Alexa that turns on your show every day on my Echo Spot using the iHeartRadio uh, app. Now I don't miss a beat. Best of the whole team, AL. Well, thank you so much, AL. I really, really appreciate that. Very, very kind of you. And uh, Alexa, are are you are you um, 
excuse me, uh, are, are you part of CIA Alexa? Answer the question. Alex Jones wants to know. Alexa, are you... You know, do you remember that? I still... Oh, man, I miss that. I miss that. Alexa, you are a machine, but you are not answering my questions about the CIA. Alexa. It was crazy with Alex Jones, man. I, if, if I, I wish we had that audio handy. I would go for it. Um, so anyway, uh, there's that. And that note was, of course, from one of our listeners, uh, AL. So thank you very much, AL. I appreciate it. All right, I am going to uh, close up shop here in the hut. Uh, please do check out the Shields High podcast. It is available uh, on the iHeart uh, app. You can follow it on the iHeart app. You can also listen uh, to it on iTunes. And please do subscribe there. It is a great way to, well, great way to listen. And I really hope you enjoy that show. We've got more coming right now. The plan is for Monday, the fall of Jerusalem, if I can make it happen, it's going to be a long weekend, uh, but the more that you all download the show, the more I'm happy to stay up super late at night doing the history podcast for Shields High. And that's a perfect transition, I suppose, to say thanks for joining me. Back here tomorrow with you, Shields High.